Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel is committed to proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and Messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. If someone says to you, explain to me why you believe that the death of Jesus atones for your sins, how would you reply? I mean, that's what Christians believe. That's what the New Testament says. That's what we believe. But skeptics and anti-missionaries raise reasonable-sounding objections. Anti-missionaries claim that, in Judaism, no one can suffer for another person's sins. And you don't have to be an anti-missionary to wonder about the mechanics of how this stuff might work. If you grew up in the church, you always heard, well, Jesus died for your sins. But seriously, how does that work? And why? What does the death of one person 2,000 years ago have to do with anyone today? What gave the apostles the idea that the death of the Messiah could atone for someone else's sin? It's a serious problem because the New Testament makes it very clear that this is how the apostles understood and interpreted the death of the Messiah, as a type of sacrificial atonement for sin, that Through the death of the Messiah, a person can find the forgiveness of sins. But they never bother to explain how that's supposed to work. Christian theologians have made various attempts to explain the mechanics of the process over the years. I'll briefly describe the top five. Number one, the ransom theory. According to the ransom theory, pioneered by the early church fathers, Adam and Eve sold humanity to Satan when they ate that damning apple. To buy back human beings from Satan, God needed to pay Satan a pretty steep price, something really valuable. He offered the life of his own son, a deal that Satan could not refuse. Of course, jokes on him, the deal backfired. He didn't realize that Christ could rise from the dead. Too late, no refunds, no returns. Once the devil accepted Christ's death as a ransom, the deal closed, and God was able to free men from Satan's grip. Number two, representative theory. In this second patristic model, Christ is not a substitute for humanity's sins, but rather he represents the whole human race. By becoming human, God creates a change in human nature. Christ's obedience and suffering brought a deification of sorts to the human condition, which, in turn, brought about redemption to humanity. I kind of like that one. Number three, satisfaction theory. The satisfaction theory shows up in the medieval church, but it remains very popular. It's similar to the ransom idea, but according to this idea, Christ's death made restitution, not to Satan, but to God for human sin by restoring balance to the scales of justice. He suffered as a divine substitute on behalf of humankind, satisfying the demands of God's honor by his infinite divine merit, a debt of honor God paid to himself, not to the devil. So human beings owe God an enormous debt because of sin, but God pays the debt himself by sacrificing his son. Number four, 
penal substitution theory. The penal substitution shows up in the Reformation era. This theory teaches that Christ voluntarily agreed to take the punishment due to sinners. His death on the cross is what the sinner should have received for his sins. Christ died in the sinner's place. If that one sounds the most familiar, it's because it's the most recent. Well, almost. There's one more that showed up about 150 years ago. Christ the Victor Theory. The Christus Victor explanation, which is a 19th century theology, revised the original ransom theory to explain that Christ's death was the means by which God unseated Satan, the power of death, and the Torah. Rather than paying the devil for human beings, the death of Christ defeated the devil by exposing the deficiency of the Torah and the injustice of Satan's system of sin, condemnation under the law, and death. It should be pretty clear at this point that nobody knows how this works. In each of these theories, the death of the master, in some sense, works as a sacrificial substitute for the sinner, whether as a ransom paid to the devil, to defeat the devil, to satisfy God's integrity and honor, or to take punishment due to human beings. All five views miss the Jewish idea at work in the New Testament. And that's the problem. That's a big problem because the apostles who interpreted the Messiah's suffering and death as efficacious to atone for sins were all Jews. So if we want to understand their ideas about how the death of the Messiah can atone for sin, we should look at Judaism. Contrary to the claims of anti-missionaries, Judaism does teach that the unmerited suffering and death of a righteous person can atone for the sins of others, and in some cases, the sins of the whole generation or the whole nation. So let's take a quick look at how this works. The Torah teaches that God is just and that he administers justice in the world by a strict measure-for-measure, eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth code of justice, the standard of his own law. The rabbis call this principle mita keneged mita, that is, measure for measure. Measure for measure theology expresses itself in a man's relationship with God and his fellow man. Our master's golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you summarizes the whole Torah and the prophets precisely because it epitomizes the principle of measure for measure. Likewise, Paul insists on a measure-for-measure system of reward and punishment when he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6-7 Matthew 7-2 says, With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And the Talmud says, By the same measure with which a man measures out to others, they measure it out to him. According to this simple justice system, the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. God rewards those who do good and he punishes those who sin. That sounds reasonable. Now, here's the unreasonable sounding part. This is difficult for us. At least, it's difficult for me to swallow. In the days of the apostles, 
Judaism explained human suffering and death are the result of God's measure-for-measure system of justice. Based upon the numerous biblical texts which equate sickness and suffering with the punishment for sin, the sages assumed that all suffering, all suffering, results from sin. For example, the Talmud says, There is no suffering without iniquity. And in another place it says, A sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him, as it is written, Who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. This is why the Amidah prayer places the prayer for forgiveness before the prayer for healing. There's one story where Yeshua alludes to this by forgiving the paralytic of his sins before he heals him. And in the Gospel of John, they see a blind man who was born blind, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I kind of wish the Master had said, where did you get that idea? You think that there's some connection between sin and suffering? This just That's not how it works. I wish he had said that. Instead, Yeshua answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. John 9, 2 and 3. Yeshua's answer does not discount the idea that suffering results from sin. It's just that in this particular case, the man's blindness does not result from his sin or the sins of his parents. In other words, that particular blind man was an exception to the general principle. The danger with this theology is exactly what we see in John 9, this foolish speculating that the disciples do to try to figure out what sin caused suffering. God's justice system is far more complicated than simple one-to-one values. You get a cold, you must have done a sin. It doesn't quite work that way. The rabbis also considered human mortality the consequence of sin. The Torah says, Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Deuteronomy 24.16 And every man died for his own sin. Numbers 27 verse 3 The Talmud explains that Satan, the evil inclination, and the angel of death are all one. Likewise, the rabbis declared, There is no death without sin, for it is written, The soul who sins shall die. The same message is in the New Testament. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1.15 Paul refers to the sin equals death equation as the law of sin and death. Romans 6.23 He says that death came into the world through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 And he says, Sin leads to death. Romans 6.16 So why do the righteous suffer? The simple black and white cause and effect rule that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked is axiomatic in the Torah, in the prophets, and in the Proverbs. The problem is that life is not so simple. It's like the classic question, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Jeremiah cries out, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And in the Psalms it says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And it says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The writer of Ecclesiastes complains, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Ecclesiastes 7.15 The entire book of Job presents a long, poetic, philosophical argument about the same question. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? The Pharisees offered answers to these questions. They insisted that death is not the end of life. The dead find comeuppance in the afterlife. In paradise, the souls of the righteous receive reward, while the wicked receive punishment in Gehenna. A resurrection of the dead will provide everyone with an opportunity to receive a final judgment for deeds committed in the flesh. The righteous will enter the final reward of the world to come, and the wicked will not. In other words, God makes everything balance out in the afterlife. Moreover, things will be set right. Those who suffered unjustly and unduly in this life will be rewarded and the scales will be tipped back to balance. So the sages talk about the value of suffering. Suffering is not just a penalty for sin. The rabbis taught that suffering encourages a person to repent, while at the same time it atones for his transgressions in this life, so that he will not have to suffer for them in the afterlife. For example, in the Master's parable about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man suffers the torments of Gehenna because he neither repented nor suffered on earth. Lazarus, on the other hand, receives the rewards of paradise because he suffered while alive. Abraham said to the rich man in torment, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Luke 16, 24 and 25. Well, if that's the case, then it would be better for a person to suffer the loss of one part of his body in this world than for his whole being to suffer in the afterlife. The master says, it is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Mark 9.43 According to Jewish theology, sickness, disability, and pain in this lifetime compensate for a man's sins. The more sorrow and sickness that a man suffers, the more mercy and reward he may anticipate in the afterlife. The sages pointed to the law in Exodus 21 that says, If you strike your slave and damage his eye, or knock out a tooth, you have to let him go free. The Talmud says, Tooth and eye are each only a single part of a man's body. Yet if they are damaged, the slave obtains his freedom. 
How much more so will man be compensated for painful sufferings which torment his whole body? The Talmud also states that suffering washes away all the sins of a man. Therefore, according to that theology, human suffering actually expresses the mercy of God. That's why in the Talmud, sufferings are called the chastisements of love. The sages explain, The Holy One, blessed be He, brings suffering upon the righteous in this world in order that they may inherit the future world. The Talmud says that God gives the world to come only through suffering. So the rabbis claimed, If the Holy One, blessed be He, is pleased with a man, He crushes him with painful sufferings. Chastisements bring forgiveness. What brings him forgiveness of sin? Suffering. What is the road that leads a man to the world to come? Chastisements. Precious are chastisements. For just as sacrifices are a means of atonement, so also are chastisements. And not only this, but chastisements atone even more than sacrifices. In the teaching of the apostles, we find the same theology of merit and reward for suffering. For example, the apostle Paul says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 The apostle Peter explicitly states that the unmerited suffering of a righteous person earns favor with God. Let's take a look at Peter's words together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, it says, beginning in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because the Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. That's 1 Peter 2, 19-21. He said twice, for this is a gracious thing. That is, when you suffer, when you do good and suffer for it and you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter exhorts believers to endure suffering with joy, just as Messiah did, because even though they do not deserve to suffer because of sin, it will bring grace. That's the, the Greek word charis, which is corresponding to the Hebrew word chain. It will bring chain, God's favor. It will bring favor with God. The New Revised Standard Version has it, it is a credit that is, you have God's approval. In other words, suffering is actually meritorious in the eyes of God and brings us the reward of his favor, that is, the reward of his grace. This answer does not sufficiently explain the suffering of the righteous, the pious, and the innocent on earth. What about children? What about those who never sinned? Clearly, you can't draw a direct correlation between a person's sins and his sufferings. So, why do bad things happen to innocent and righteous people? 
Jewish theologians asked, if suffering is a result of sin, for whose sins do the righteous suffer? Obviously, they do not suffer for their own sins. They do not need atonement, after all. By definition, the righteous are righteous. For whose sins, then, do they suffer, if not for their own? It must be for the sins of others. Which is the opposite of what the anti-missionary and anti-Yeshua literature will tell you. Anti-missionaries claim that no person can atone for the sins of another person, but early Judaism teaches that a righteous man might suffer even on behalf of the whole nation. According to the Zohar, the righteous pass all their days in suffering to protect the people. The Apostle Paul uses the same type of suffering on behalf of others language when he speaks about his own suffering being credited to other believers, he says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the Messiah's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Colossians 1.24 He claims to suffer for the sake of the Colossian believers and that his suffering compensates for what is lacking in Messiah's sufferings. We have a lot more material to plow through before we're able to answer our initial questions about how the death of the Messiah atones for sin. But you can already see how the theology took shape out of these ideas about the suffering of the righteous. You probably already realize that this Jewish approach to the question shares very little in common with any of the five theories of atonement taught by the church. In the next lesson, we will continue working through this and discussing its implications. For now, since we are still in 1 Peter. Let's take a look at that passage again. It says, For this is a gracious thing, that is, this is a thing that incurs God's favor, that, that brings God's grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing, a thing that brings God's favor in the sight of God. This teaching of Peter is a life changer, a complete life changer. It's a gift because in life, you will often suffer unjustly. In this passage, Peter was speaking about, in context, he was speaking about Christian slaves who must suffer under unjust masters who mistreat them. And Peter says that when a person suffers unjustly, he attains favor with God. Is there anything more maddening than when someone mistreats you, is angry with you, expresses irritation at you for something you did not even do? Or when you find or when you do some good deed and receive nothing but sorrow in return? You show chesed to someone and they repay you with sinat chinam, with baseless hatred, or when something awful happens to you that you totally did not deserve whatsoever. Simon Peter says that we should bear up under these things and endure them. In fact, he says that 
This is the calling of anyone who calls himself a disciple. We have been called to suffer unjustly and to endure it with patience. He says, beginning again in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because the Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet he suffered. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges right. To him who judges justly. Though he suffered unjustly, he did not blaspheme God or curse him, and he did not curse or revile the Romans or the Sadducees. He did not blame anyone, but while suffering unjustly, he entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly, who judges measure for measure, knowing then that since he suffered unjustly and since he was without sin, he was suffering on behalf of others, even on behalf of the whole nation. Simon Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Find rest for your soul